is on the front of every magazine and has, has the UK market ever had anything that's gone that boogaloo? Um, got taken over. So that was that. Is that the last one? Well, we've got a nice baking soda company looking to IP. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> Turkish. What was it called? Uh, what was it called? Now? Are we going to call the advent of a new build market based on a new so baking soda? Here come the IPAs. <laughs> what an exciting market. Right, fellas. Ready to go? Ready, ready to go. Let's get on with it. Um, hello, folks. Welcome back. Taking stock after the bell, episode nine, and we've blown the budget, and we've got new microphones with me, James Hughes, yep. investment manager, and JR, Johnny Raymond's investment manager. Right, fellas, where to start? Um, the Times reckon you can earn 200,000 pounds a year and still struggle. Johnny, you're a man that earns <laughs> half a million pounds a year. What did you think of that? It's not true. Um, uh, it, when it was, so the, the point of the article, and I did read it with interest, was that if you want to go on what is a relatively extravagant lifestyle, but not uber rich, look like two decent holidays a year, two kids in private schools, fast nursery, and live in Surrey. Live in Surrey. Million quid house. That's it. Do you know why Surrey has exclusivity on the middle classes? You live in Surrey, though, don't you? I do. Um, I have no idea because I'm not winning any trophies <laughs> at the middle class. <laughs> class sorry. I think it, the the two things that jump out at me, I think, don't know whether this is being from Northern Ireland and, and our education system being free of a private school, 23k a year net income for oh, each so you, child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've um, got to earn double that, haven't you? Gross. So if you've got two kids and you're paying the best part of 50 grand. Fifty grand net. Yeah, you need to earn hundred grand gross. So that to me, I mean, I don't know what it's like over here necessarily, but that to me feels like the fairly obvious labour to pull. The other one's property prices. So they reckoned in the article that the average property price has risen by almost tenfold since the nineteen eighties, and I'm guessing property in Surrey isn't the average. No. Uh, average in that. No. Um, I mean, property. If you want a four bed house somewhere reasonable in Surrey, Surrey's a huge area, but if you want something that's commutable with, you know, that's detached, um, you're easily looking over a million quid. I mean, the prices have just gone astronomical and it's all to do with shortage of housing and people wanting a bit more greenery, isn't it? Um, a lot of the, I mean, it seems like a lot of the more desi historically desirable middle-class ways to spend your money have seen mega inflation over mm. the years. Yeah, 100%. Um, well, pub private school fees have gone up by way more than inflation for 20, 30 years. Mm. They've done about 6 or 7% a year versus 2 or 3, and that, that compounds up to be quite quite um, quite a big difference. I mean, it made the other interesting point of the article was although income tax rates have are actually lower than they were in the 80s, if you take into account national insurance, VAT, freezing of thresholds, etc., Actually, we're taxed a lot heavier now than we were back then. But it was amazing that they think, well, the article was saying from the 80s to where we are now, it essentially costs double to live the same lifestyle today on an inflation adjusted basis. Um, I think property prices for me are, are, are the big one. And I know interest rates are lower, but the big change, and I'm not suggesting it shouldn't have been done, but Thatcher obviously changed regulation to allow mm. um, you to get a mortgage based on two incomes. So it only ever used to be you could get a mortgage on one income, 
um, and automatic, you know, that's all, that's going to double prices quite quickly, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. Um, and I'm not for a second suggesting that a household should only be able to get a mortgage based on one income, but that's been a major change. And it, and there's, I think there's more pressure on parents now um, with children trying to live a reasonable lifestyle that both parents probably have to earn go to work yeah there's less time there's certainly more pressure on everyone just just in the property market point though i mean mortgage interest relief which they refer to in the yeah. in the piece was canned in 2000 yeah. yeah so in theory that should have taken a little bit of steam out of property but property has gone off yeah. in a straight line in well, this country which we've said before it's supply dynamics right yeah we well, haven't you've had two major changes as james alluded to one it's now dual income for a mortgage yeah. and interest rates have gone from 15% in 1990 to 5% today via 1% last year. So, you know, if you take those two, you know, those two have been huge factors in the rise of property prices. Now, if you take mortgage rates back up again from one to five, maybe even higher, six, 7%, then to keep your payments roughly similar, sorry, as a proportion of your income, the property yeah. value has to fall, doesn't it? In the, in, in, because mortgage payments have fallen as a proportion of income, people have been able to buy more expensive houses or bid up prices. Gear up more. Gear up more, exactly. Yeah. So this is all about interest rates and lower interest rates allow higher capital values. In, in a simple way, when you look at a government bond, the higher the interest rate, the lower the price. And when interest rates go up, the price goes down. It, it, it's the same for any asset, no matter how you cut and dice it. Now, we've talked talked ad, ad nauseum about property prices so let's not you know go through it too much more in detail but if interest rates go up from one to five percent and, and even further there has to be an impact on the property market at some point because it just doesn't make any sense otherwise yeah. i mean of course the, the, there's a third point to the property prices which is parents and grandparents having the ability to um to help out our generation or generations, you know, the, the generation slightly above where, whereas I think our parents' generation is quite rare to, for mm. their parents to have the ability to be able to help yeah. out. And obviously yeah. part of that ability is through the rising price of properties, you know, whether parents or grandparents have downsized or accumulated wealth through property and taken it out somehow, but um, that, that's obviously fed into it as well. So um, all in all, it's a more expensive world, Dave. It is, an all, it is a more expensive world. I think it's probably more expensive. The inflation's come in the nice-to-haves, hasn't it, mm. rather than the necessities, although we're getting you know, yeah. major inflation across the board I mean, recently. But I mean, it feels like is, decades, that's where the inflation's been. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, again, the article pointed out pension payments. You know, there's no, we're all contributing to our pensions now. Um, again, if we were working to, you know, 30 years ago, there were final salary pension schemes or, or you didn't have to contribute um, or, or you didn't have pensions. Um, I'm not saying again, you know, again, we should all have pensions. Um, I think the government regulation in terms of having to put a percentage of your portfolio into a pension, sorry, a percentage of your earnings into a pension is important. Yeah. Um, but that's, that again, that's taking more money away from disposable income um, and spend. Well, this is where this all comes back to for me. I just think we all love a moan. <laughs> and every generation loves to moan about their individual circumstances and feel like they get it harder than their parents. And in reality, every generation faces its own challenges. Mm. Um, you could just not send your kids to private school, I guess. Yeah, 
as <laughs> an option. Yep. Um, you shared, Tuesday this piece from Lion Trust, which I thought was really interesting because we talked about the debt ceiling. I'm not going to labor the point. Surprise, surprise. It all appears to have been sorted um, because yeah. nobody has any interest in seeing the world burn. Well, we, we were very confident on, on it being sorted, <laughs> weren't we, Dave? Yeah, on the there, surface. There was, there, <laughs> was, there, was one, there was one of our uh, colleagues that wasn't so uh, confident. It's, it's something that comes around and there's a playbook, but... Um, Interesting from interesting sort of contrarian view from Land Trust. Yeah, it was. I mean, something I hadn't picked up until they put out their sort of monthly piece. But it was around. Obviously, I think Yellen announced in January that they essentially hit the debt ceiling. Um, you know, so obviously no more debt could be issued, and and they had to go to the Senate to be approved, which you know it took until last week. Um, but in the meantime they had to continue paying government bills so you have the the what's the reserve bank account the, the uh, treasury general account the treasury general general account which it's basically the us government's current account yeah so it had about a trillion dollars in it and they've essentially you run down that account to about 90 billion so you've you've essentially had you know over 900 billion of stimulus pumped into the market in terms of liquidity um and and that's just a essentially because they couldn't issue any bonds so the argument was can't that issue any bonds the money has to go somewhere instead of going into u.s treasuries it goes into microsoft and apple which in the equity market are about as close as you can get yeah i mean I, people talk about liquidity as this kind of thing that drives markets and it's quite a nebulous concept so i i sometimes switch off about this but as james says if your current account starts the year at a trillion dollars and you can't issue debt because by issuing debt, someone's got to stump up for that debt. So the cash yeah. has got to come out of the system to go into US treasuries. Well, if you're not issuing debt, then that cash has got to go somewhere else. Now, it might be that if you don't buy a US treasury, you might buy a Microsoft bond or an Apple bond. You might buy it off somebody else. Yeah. Whoever then sells the Apple bond goes and buys a junk bond. And then whoever sells the junk bond goes and buy an equity. So it's like people taking steps up and down the risk curve. It's about like QA. The effect of it is about like yeah, QA. Yeah, it's not yeah. not dissimilar actually. This is really simplistic, and I'm I'm sure it's not like this. But you know, if you can now going to go back the other way, whereby the Treasury general account is down to what fifty billion or something. I mean, it was quite low considering the size of how much the U.S. government spends every year. Yeah. yeah. And you now got to get that back to a trillion. That yeah. means you've now got to issue more bonds. Yeah. So the person who's got that equity, so you know, the person who's now got the Microsoft bond sells the Microsoft bond to buy the U.S. Treasury, and the risk and then the risk goes back the other way. Right. Well, so this that, is this is Josh Brown's thing that I've heard him talk about before. That what kills bull markets and, and what kills bull markets basically is not necessarily people get getting over exuberant, although people will get over exuberant. It's supply and it's mm, excess mm, supply mm. and it's loads of IPOs in not the best companies in the world who see their opportunity and eventually investors just get exhausted. Yep. The money just, there's basically, there's a buyer strike and that's yep. what causes bull markets. And it's a similar concept, mm. you know, broadly speaking, the money does have to go somewhere. Mm. And if there's fewer treasuries to buy, then maybe mm. you get pushed up the risk curve. Oh yeah, yeah. and they started issuing again last week. And for the moment, it's not had a knock on effect to equity markets, but, but you know, their argument was there's been a, a decent tailwind for equities based on this quite specific situation. And perhaps that tailwind, they was basically saying they think the summer is going to be much choppier yeah. um, because of because of this dynamic. Um, and it was the first time I'd, 
I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people that have looked at this or discussed it, but it was the first time it had come across my desk. It, it, it um, makes instinctive sense to me. It's the sort of mm. thing that actually, if we don't get a choppy summertime, we'll mm. be forgotten about. <laughs> mm. But actually, they could look really, really clever because yeah. I think it makes a lot of intuitive yeah. sense. Maybe coincidental rather than yeah. causational, if that's yeah. a word, which I don't think it mm. is. No, agreed. Um, Japan is back. John? Japan is back. Um, so the Nikkei is up a huge amount year to date, 25, 30% year to date. Is um, it? Yeah. But before we all get sort excited. S- s- like snuck up, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but then before we all get excited, in sterling terms, it's only up about 10% because the pound yeah. is up against the yen. So let's not get kind of too carried away about it. Uh, I checked this you morning. You love car- getting carried away James, about Japan. James gets carried away about everything. Um, Very um, excitable. <laughs> drives a Toyota. <laughs> James drives, James, James drives a diesel. There was no, uh, no ESG friendly going on here. Um, and so the Japanese equity markets are up the same amount in sterling terms as US equity markets are. Yeah. Mm. But um, the chart's amazing. So that's the shorter term chart. That's short term. Have you got the longer one? Is, yeah. Oh, there it is. What a graveyard. There it is. I mean, this makes me feel a bit physically sick. There have been books written about the bubble in Japan in the late 80s with some extraordinary stories. Right. Um, Take me back to Japan in the late 80s. Um, the land underneath the palace in Tokyo was worth more than all of California. Yeah. Come up with the name of the palace, the Imperial Palace, is it? The Emperor's. Yeah. Um, was worth more than. All yep. of California, yep. right? <laughs> um, so, the that, equity market is that, not, is that not fair value? <laughs> <laughs> it was then. Um, Depends if California sinks, I suppose. Wow. And the equity market was twenty-five percent of global equities. Yeah, at the peak. Yeah. No car companies. We, we did this before. Might have been we more. looked at the, of MSCI world markets. I think it was higher than the US's. Today, Today. it was it was a lot. It was it was it was well, a car, bubble car, car to companies, end all tech companies, exporters and car companies yeah. and makers of stuff, TVs, yeah, yeah. Uh, and property. So and it was on cameras, the, cameras. There you go. What could possibly go wrong? Um, and ludicrous valuations, overexcitement, one-way yeah. trades, too much debt, loads of borrowing. We were talking about this earlier, actually, over teams. You're absolutely fine. And we'll get back on to the stats around equities versus cash, mm-hmm. but you're absolutely fine on that, over most long-term time horizons unless um, unless yeah. you grossly overpay. Yeah. And you grossly overpaid in Japan in 1989. Mm. Um, and it's one of the reasons why in our portfolios, we have Japan as a separate, separate segment. It goes back to this time period because it was such a big region in terms of value. Um, it had its own place in benchmarks. Yeah. If you look at it now, it's actually quite a small subset of overall global equity markets. It has. It's slipped back, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the obvious, I'm sure there would be people that have, well, people have said over the years that that, you know, being the biggest geography in the MSCI world is a little bit of a poison chalice and it's probably going to lead to a period of maybe not as bad underperformance as that. Mm. But, you know, it, it doesn't feel to me like the US is quite as overcooked as Japan in, in the no, 80s. definitely but, not. Yeah, no, totally no valuations. So I think, I think there's a few interesting things. So they've basically gone 30 years of unwinding of this speculative, speculative bubble. Mm. And Japanese companies are net cash, got very low valuations, been very conservatively managed. 
And they've been net cash for a reason. Um, what does that mean? It means they've got no debt overall. And in fact, they've got more cash on their balance sheet. And if you think about it, they've had deflation for 20 years. So if you've got cash, that's an appreciating asset in real terms. You're better off having cash in a deflationary environment. So if you think about the demographic, though, in 1989, you, if you were 30 in 1989, you'd be, what, 60-odd today? Probably in the sort of upper echelons of corporate Japan with a very vivid memory of starting your career yeah, in the late yeah, 80s yeah. at the height of the bubble. And that, I mean, this comes back a lot to how you feel as an investor or, you know, your formative years having an influence on your behavior for the next 30. If you started your career in 88, 89, and then the whole thing blew up. You're still underwater. From you're the still underwater from that day. But you've, you've, you know, you've battened down the hatches for 30 yeah. years because that's your mentality. There's a story about a hedge fund in the US, which is sort of, you know, allied to this, that, in the late 70s, the 70s were a pretty terrible time for financial assets. And there was a hedge fund in the US that decided in the late 70s or early 80s that the new bull market started. But the only way that they were going to make money was they had to hire a whole new load of young people, aged 25 to 30, who weren't battle scarred by the 70s. Didn't have that scar tissue because they were the ones who were, who were in a position to take the risk. So corporate Japan has from a behavioral perspective, hasn't been able to take risk for the last 30 years because they've been mm. deleveraging and trying to unwind this bubble. So, you know, another piece of the bull case is that now you're getting to the point where the people who remember the bubble are beginning to retire and move on and you've got a new generation, new cohort coming through who may, famous last words, have a slightly more growth mindset and want to close discounts on valuations, want to invest that cash for growth, want to build factories. Yeah. You know, Japan are very good at AI, robotics, industrialization, yeah. and they're good at high tech stuff. So I think when we started this pod, we were talking quite a lot about reshoring and onshoring back from China. And we did we did talk about Japan being mm. a beneficiary ben, yeah. because there's a huge amount of expertise, know how, you know, hardworking people. It, it's it, it would make sense to have some relocation to, to that sort of area. Um, there's obviously it, other Asian countries that will be net beneficiaries as well, but Japan was certainly something that was was focused on at the time. Other Asian countries are available, but there's there some are, absolutely other than China, yeah. China. <laughs> but it, like, there, there's some there's some fantastic companies in, China, in Japan, mm, but mm. I remember when I started, you know, there was a lot of people who would just point blank refuse to have any exposure to the asset class mm, whatsoever. Yeah. I suppose that's the Johnny's point. Mm. But then, um, like, we only talk about, like, it's up 25% local in yen terms year to date. We only talk about this stuff after it's gone an absolute tear. Well, so that's everything. We can be it? bullish on Japan because it's just gone up, and that's mm. kind of human nature. Well, to that, um, point, to that point, I mean, it's price following sentiment. Example number 3,678. <laughs> we do, we do like uh, that. We've got some charts on sentiment. Um, this one, Johnny? Um, uh, the it's national the hedge fund, isn't it? Uh, no, this is, this is invest long only investment managers. The top pane yeah, here, long only it. investment managers exposure to equities. So when the blue line is higher, that means that they've got more exposure to equities, and when the line is lower, um, they are more underweight equities. And you can see that recently that line has gone up materially. Um, and the bottom pane on the chart is the um, the U.S. equity market, uh, the S and P five hundred. <laughs> and funnily enough. Um, when your market goes up, uh, investment managers' exposure goes up as well. Now, I'm not saying that one causes the other, but um, as you say, Dave, sentiment follows price. And when the price goes up, a lot of fund managers feel as though they have to be more invested and more bullish. Mm. And um, this is it. I, I yeah, I spend a lot of time thinking about which causes the other. It's probably price, isn't it? 
I think there's yeah. probably a lot of people who feel so if you so probably the classic example the recent example is probably Nvidia if you're a long only manager yep. it's just gone into the top five companies in your index you if you don't have any you, can't not own it now. you might buy have a little nibble keep yep. it outside your top 10 maybe yep. I mean it's yep. a, I mean hedge fund exposure it's amazing the 180 degree, t- 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 degree turn they've done since the beginning of the year in terms of being massively long value going in within a few months it's all completely swung around and then massively long growth again i know we talked about it before but this is why you don't listen to hedge man hedge fund managers on cnbc totally because they man they're they they won't be being disingenuous necessarily but they'll come on the tuesday say one thing and on a wednesday they'll change their mind and they won't phone up cnbc no. No, no. to say oh by the way i've completely repositioned my portfolio so it's just you know it's a mugs game but that's but, that's but example all, one yeah, but also they have the ability to change things on a very short-term basis whereas you know we we are long-term investors and are very you know proud of the fact we are and it you know it works with our client base to to, to run money in that way um you know and, and and performance you know is steady over that time period if you're a hedge fund manager everything or a lot of it's geared or leveraged and it's unfortunately you're only as good as your last quarter yeah and, and they're paid to make aggressive bets, um, it, it's just a completely different side to um, to the industry. I, I also, you know, again, we've we talked about this before, but when you're a hedge fund manager, I think clients don't get to see all the individual positions. Um, they can cut and change things whenever you want. Whereas we do have an element of, you know, the valuations we produce have every single line of investment on. There is. You're very defensive about what's in your valuations, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Transparent, yeah. I mean, transparency is everything. Transparency yeah. is everything. Can you imagine if you were a client of a hedge fund and you had full transparency into what they were doing underneath the bonnet? It would be mm. petrifying. Yes, it would. Have you seen some of the total costs on these sort of hedge fund like strategies that are within portfolios in Method Two world? Yes, they're just absolutely terrifying. Mm. Yeah. Turnovers, hundreds and hundreds of percentage points. Yeah, yeah. mad. Long short funds, just the turnover means that you've got um, absolutely eye watering, yeah. which is fine when it's working. Less that's, so when it's not. The old two and twenty, isn't it? A lot of them still charge that way. Yeah. Um, sentiment number two. Uh, this is a, a chart that we spend a bunch of time, or we check in with fairly regularly. Um, <clears throat> sentiment indicator from from our friends at City. Um, showing people still feel a bit nervous. Is yeah. That, is this that- is a. This is has been a bit of a surprise. So the the Levkovich index, as is now known, formerly the Panic Euphoria index, is a an objective way of men, um, showing market participants' sentiment mm. levels. Mm. So when the blue line is higher, markets are deemed or participants are deemed more euphoric, and these are professional investors mainly. And when the line is lower, then investors are deemed to be panicked. And at the moment, the line is in panic territory, pretty much, or there or thereabouts, which. You know, when the market goes down, then that's sort of to be expected. And, and, and you've got periods where the equity market sold off before and you've got some panic. But you've also got two big points of euphoria here, 99, 2000 and, and 2020, 2021 post-pandemic. Mm. And I mean, this is almost the reverse to the previous slide we showed in terms of active long-only managers yeah. positioning versus... Yeah, which is why it's a bit does. of a surprise. But It is, and, and we, you know, we get quite excited when... The, you know, the, this index is in 
panic territory mm. because it's a really good contraindicator. It, it, it is, and 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 then you look, and the DAX is at all time highs, and the S and P is twenty five percent off its lows, and you know the. There is a disconnect between what yeah. people say and how they feel and how they invest. Mm. That's I, true. I mean, we'll come I on to. Say, I know. I know. You know, leadership has been very narrow. Because I, I, maybe that's part of it. But. We we we've talked about it before, and we are God help us all professional investors. You know, we might feel <laughs> negative. <for> yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, we might feel negative, I and mean, this is a really really important point. We might feel negative. We might be concerned. Mm. We might be seeing all the same headlines the clients are seeing but we might not necessarily be doing huge amounts in portfolios going 20% to cash because that well, historically did, has not been a good idea. I mean, history, t history tells us and, and our training has taught us that you know, when, when markets are fearful, you know, that's when we should start putting money to work and, and it's hard keep, though. yeah, it, it is hard and, and keep our conviction, but that, that's why this is really interesting that, you know, we are in panic territory still. Yeah, I, I just think that so equities, playing that game is the, playing that game is too difficult because stock markets quite a lot of the time exist to inflict maximum pain on you. Yeah, and, and I, if I, you can get through that, then you'll be yeah. absolutely fine. But the habit of kicking um, you when you're down. Yeah, I was thinking these sentiment indicators are really good pieces of the jigsaw and yeah. pieces of the mosaic, and you need to use a few of them. Hmm. But when they're all, when everyone is panicked, whether that's the investment, the the previous one or, or the, the the levkovich index or the the retail you know the aaii retail yeah. which we've used before when they're all pointing when they're saying that everyone's panicked that's probably yeah. the time to it's get massive it's about massive so it's a really good contraindicator but it's not the indicator it's definitely something to use alongside you know valuation fundamentals mm. bit of macro if that's what you're into i i think short-term sentiment is great yeah but none of us really invest in the short term um so it can be a decent indicator of how you know what returns might be like might be like yeah. over, you know six to 12 months but the vast majority of our clients have much longer investment time horizons yeah. so um it's helpful in the short term but we, we don't really you know does it find loads of implications in portfolios well no mm. not necessarily no. i mean the, the the you know the the nice thing is you know equities are not or not overbought based on this um you know valuations are still very reasonable it's a good starting point isn't it definitely um, um to give you an idea of how far sentiment has swung in, in both directions this, this is, this is momentum this is the momentum etf isn't it or a momentum strategy so this is from wells fargo um so at the moment so the big move here is that at the moment this strategy has got 2.9 percent in technology and is about to buy another rebalance 18 percent of its exposure in the technology this rebalances every six months six months so six months ago you couldn't give tech away six months later you've got to buy back a fifth year portfolio into technology so maybe let, let's just explain first of all how this how the strategy works it's buying stuff that's working right it's buying stuff that's going up yeah m m momentum as a strategy has some decent academic theoretical underpinnings i.e prices trend mm. over a medium time horizon and it might sound a bit flippant but prices uh. tend tend to trend until they stop trending so if we think about 2020 2021 then the netflixes and the facebooks and the amazons were re working really well mm. and they were all in uptrends so a momentum strategy like that would have been heavily overweight those sort of strategies and heavily underweight energy 
materials, whatever wasn't working mm. at the time. And then of course, 2022 came along and the whole thing flipped over. Facebook and Amazon and Netflix all fell 50% plus. Chevron and Exxon went to the races because the oil price went up. So a momentum strategy like this one would have flipped its exposure into energy and out of tech. Yeah. And lo and behold, this year, the things reversed pretty much entirely again. So these momentum strategies are trying to trying to catch up. So it's not been, you know, when you get short term reversals and you get trends that don't last very long, strategies like this don't do particularly well because they're always behind the curve. Yeah. But if you get trends that tend to work for a long period of time and tech from 2010 onwards would have been a really good example of a trend that was in place. I'm guessing that this sort of strategy would have had a lot of tech through that 10 year period. Yeah, it didn't really get a main reversion during that. No, from like 14, it was one way trade. Yeah. So, but with this flip flopping of the market at the moment with sport. different yeah. stocks like, leading. Momentum, momentum feels to me like quite uncomfortable as a strategy. Mm. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, if something's gone up, why is it going to keep going up? I, you know, I'm always sort of one for when something goes down, I naturally get interested. And that's one of my own kind of behavioral biases. And I'm aware of it, psychological biases. Um, but the, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that momentum works a lot of the time on certain it probably time probably works because it's completely counterintuitive. Yeah. It's well, by yeah, and it, cell and it, it, yeah. And it's human nature. It's a human nature thing, right? Mm. So you're, the momentum works because human nature, humans are not rational agents, as the economic textbooks say. But it's interesting. How, I mean, how much impact is this rebalancing going to have? Presumably very little. This is, again, that's not another massive. thing that people say, like back to the tortoise thing. Mm. Um, people say, you know, people hang it out there as some kind of yeah. post-factor rationalization yeah, 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 yeah. for yeah. tech Definitely. doing well. Uh, Who knows? I mean, I don't know, but... I don't think... It's an interesting gauge of, of where sentiment yeah, has come from in the last six months, because yep. six months can sometimes feel like a long time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, last couple of things, um, doom and gloomsters new, um, topic du jour mm -hmm. is lack of market breadth, uh, mm -hmm. and strength in the market. So Husey, this is the performance of the top seven stocks, isn't it? In the, in the S and P. It is. And uh, the performance of the other 493. So. 400 lovely maths that checks out <laughs> um so the large seven portfolios obviously smoking since the beginning of the year the remainder of the market people would say well if you've only got a market that's being held up by seven mega cap yeah. names then yeah. we're doomed um we i mean there's two there's two schools of thought aren't there there's the ones that you know as you say say we're doomed because market breadth has been so narrow but then the, on, on the other hand, there's a lot of talk of the rest of the market catching up. And, and actually, we've seen, you know, the last few days, we've seen a bit of that as well. I mean, the Russell, Russell 2000 has had a pretty good performance yeah. since, what, mid last, mid last week? Yeah, a good week last week. Um, mm. So there is, there is a bit more. This week, it's broadening, broadening out slightly. But of course, it's got a long way to go to catch up what NVIDIA and... And the like I, think, I, I heard um, um i think i heard on a pod i was listening to earlier this week that the gap between the uh i think it's 12 or six months performance between the market cap weighted mm. and the equal weighted s p is at all time mm. wide yeah wide it, it's width. i mean one thing which is very obvious is 
this sort of environment is very difficult for active managers because no one is as concentrated as as this and you know it's a you could never guess the names that are going to do that but you know running a more balanced portfolio you know looking at what the other 493 stocks have done you'd be you know you you you'd be probably very small numbers up yeah um, versus what what the s p has done so the um, um apple is at an all-time high current valuation yeah. 2.9 trillion dollars okay it's done so we you know you would have talked about it the other week i suspect it's 2.9 trillion dollars more or less than the value of the land underneath the job <laughs> get back to you on that dave <laughs> So it's more than that's more than that's that market cap is obviously more than the FTSE 100. We've discussed that before, yeah. but Apple has half the sales that the FTSE 100 has. Half the sales? Well, it's probably come back to that point we made a Cuts couple of weeks ago. Miners, miners versus Meta, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. Sort of, it feels like dreams are getting a bit pricier again. Yeah, it does, but not that Apple's a dream. You company. know, you look at you look at the long term average in terms of PE on the S and P 500, and even with these big seven stocks, it's you know it's not unreasonable. And, and actually, if you take the seven stocks out, we were looking at it a minute mm. ago. Looks we? cheap. Yeah, it does. I mean, what, what have you got the numbers? Yeah, so the S and P is on eighteen and a half times, nineteen times this year, or next twelve months earnings, which is not way out of line. The, the fifteen-year average is rate. like sixteen, yeah. so it's expensive relative to its long-term average, but not egregiously so. And again, if you strip out those top seven. And those top seven include Tesla and Amazon, which are, and Nvidia, which have both have all mm. got pretty high multiples for various yeah. reasons. Then the rest of the S and P, you know, the four nine three, as mm. we've now christened it, um, is probably on 15, 14, 15 times earnings, yeah. Yeah. which is banging, probably cheap in the thirty year average. So, mm. I it's, mean, um, do I mean, you the, do you think this is going to continue? I, oh, I don't know. Well, um, just before we get off, Brad, I mean. Was it you said, Johnny? Uh, breadth is something the bearers say to make themselves sound clever. <laughs> um, actually, the data is is actually would suggest it's intuitive that a market which is being held up by the seven biggest companies is not a healthy market. But that's actually not what the data tells you. So this is the numbers from BMO uh, via Faxa, I think, via Michael Batnick's blog, which I picked it up from. Um, following periods of mega cap outperformance versus the rest mm. of the market. So the top five stocks outperforming the rest of the market, you have had on average a 6.7% gain in the six months following those periods and 12 months out, 22.2% average annual good, gain. Yeah. So that suggests that to your point, James, mm. the market tends to catch up rather mm. than the bigger names catch falling. Um, counterintuitive, but... I saw the other... Obviously, S and P's about twenty five percent higher than its lows. I did. I saw something earlier, which was when there's a return of over twenty percent from its lows in the following year. I don't think the S and P has ever closed lower than the point before, or the point at when it reached the plus twenty, the plus twenty percent. So there are some data points out there now which have. Yep. Be, no, some technicals which yep. are becoming. So, and the, and the other one is uh, for, for for maths lovers out there is the Fibonacci retracement levels. Oh. So, if you get your it's Fibonacci been, numbers, studying, out. Isn't it? <laughs> I can feel the palpable excitement. So, the S and P is reclaimed. Uh, so, the S and P has reclaimed sixty one point eight percent of the fall. 
which is right. a very important Fibonacci retracement level. These are just lines on a page numbers, so don't don't shoot the messenger here. Um, but again, once that threshold has been reached when recovering from a bottom, a new low has not mm. been seen. Yeah. So again, like you know, it's not to say it will never happen because stuff happens that has never happened, mm. and the sample size is quite small. But you know, based on history and what we've seen before, it seems unlikely that the U.S. market is going to see those all-time those those lows that we saw in October last year. You had me at Fibonacci. I yeah, mean, how much of a heartbreaker would this be if you did go back to the October lows? Well, it would be a kick in the teeth for lots of people. Be prepared for it. May not happen, but be prepared for it. Mentally. Be prepared for everything. Um, I mean, yeah, history never repeats itself. No, but it does rhyme. It does rhyme often, and there are you know there are there are things that we can look at. Mm, right um final thing um slightly common question that we have been getting um i get why i would invest into stocks and take risk whenever interest rates are zero mm -hmm. but interest rates are no longer zero i quite like the sound of four and a half five percent taking zero risk we all know that having cash in the bank is not zero risk it's just a different kind of risk but um I wrote something to try and act as a little bit of a of a rebuttal to that and, and remind ourselves why we invest in equities at all um, during periods when interest rates are a little bit higher. So what we did was we went back and looked at the five-year rolling returns for the global stock market, MSCI world, in sterling terms and compared it to basically cash, what cash gave you per annum over that five-year period. And what we can see here is that from 1985 to the current day, um, you would have been better off investing in equities over those rolling five-year periods, 74.2% of the time. So basically, any time the blue line there is above the x-axis, the zero, you would have been better off in stocks versus cash over the previous five years. Um, over 10 years, the probability is slightly better. You would have done better in equities versus cash, 85.5% of the time. And finally, over 15-year periods, probably unsurprisingly, you would have been done better even again. Probability of stocks outperforming cash over rolling 15-year periods was 91.3%. Um, two, a couple of additional things to say there. One, if you exclude dividends, this doesn't look anywhere near as good mm -hmm. for equities. So dividends are really, really important to total returns. Two, interest rates during this period are above where they are currently, were above where they are, where they are currently for two thirds of the data set. And three, interest rates in the 80s were about 10%. So it's not just been a period of ultra low nope. interest rates. I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense because if I'm running a business and I'm having to borrow at 5%, I need my margin to be well above that level. Yeah taking into account staff costs, material costs, et cetera, et cetera. So prices go up and your returns, ultimately, your earnings per share, higher than that cash return. It's just, otherwise you wouldn't run a business. Mm -hmm. It makes, if you think Intuitive about sense. it- The business has to it, do better yeah, than cash, otherwise no one will start that, a business. Yeah, think about it that simplistically, which I think we need to in this instance in a way, otherwise there'd be no entrepreneurship. There'd be no opportunity to go for if you couldn't ever do better than cash. So, no. Um, it, that's that, that's why I think. I mean, the other side is an investor as well. You should be rewarded with some. I mean, the equity is the equity risk premium a thing. Yep. I mean, logically, it should be. Mm. If you are putting capital to work by mm. 
staking capital for businesses, it should do a little bit better than having it left in the bank. Economically, I mean, logically, yeah. should be the case. Totally. Um, pretty other thing, final thing to say on this as well. It's um, it's asymmetric in a way. So when equities outperform cash per year over the 15 year ruling periods, they do so on average by 4.7% when they underperformance by 0.8%. So actually, you know, if you're going down to perform cash, you tend to mm. historically have done so by less than if you beat it. And when you beat it, you tend to wallop it. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is great. This is brilliant. It's quite work. amazing. Data. And yeah, and it's interesting if you pick the points in time when cash has outperformed equities, which is the minority of the periods, and as you say, tends to underperform by less than you outperform the other way around, they are your investment starting point and all those examples was during a period of very high equity market valuations. So if you invested in 99, 2000, mm -hmm. when valuations were super high, if you invested in Japan in 1989, if you invested in the US in 1929, you know, if you invest at moments in time when valuations on equities are very, very high, as the data shows, you are more likely to underperform cash over the ensuing 5, 10, 15 years because you're starting from too high a point in time. So, you know, I love this. I think this is brilliant. And it, it, it one of our, you know, good friends has got a, a very simple investment strategy of just lob it in and forget about it. And his, unless, the, his, unless the unless, market is egregiously yeah, overvalued. Exactly. Yeah. Unless then, you overpay egregiously initially, yeah. you will be fine. be fine. But you've got to put and up have with, a sufficient time. You've right. got to put up with the nonsense that, that goes, which is, you know, sentiment indices, recession, US government debt shut down, debt ceiling, oh, yeah. three, Greek lads debt crisis. In, three lads in meeting room five talking how miserable <laughs> they are. Yeah. yeah. Cynicism in general. So, you know, if, if, and we've had conversations about it in the last few weeks because today, the UK, I know your chart here, the UK one year gilt, um, your chart shows it at 4.94. You only sure. produced this chart this morning. Um, and six hours later, the UK one year gilt is now 5.05. So you can now get more mm -hmm. than 5% on a one year UK government bond. Yeah. So which, the hurdle rate's getting higher. Hurdle rate's getting and higher. I think it, it, the, the, the reason the hurdle rate I think feels so high is because people have become accustomed to getting zero on yep. cash for so long. So going from zero to five feels a lot more of a move than That's from five move. to 10. It's a huge move. But the, the point still stands, based on the data, based on valuations, based on history, equities today have got a higher probability odds of beating cash over 5, 10, and 15 years. Mm -hmm. So if you've got cash and you want a return and you don't want to touch it for five years, then you are more than likely better off by far investing in equities and not holding in cash. And if they do Despite yields being at 5%. 5, 5%. Mm -hmm. Your relative outperformance is going to be a lot better. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it is, in a nutshell, the lob it in strategy. Lob it in. Lob it in. That's, that's what you've got to title it, lob it in. <laughs> <laughs> we always come up with a title at the end. Um, thanks very much, guys. That was brilliant. That's good. I for farming. Um, thank you very much for joining us again. Uh, we'll be back next week, I think is next week. We'll start guest next week. Well, it's episode number 10, so we've got a star guest coming in. Um, in the meantime, if you've got any questions, let me know at david.henry at Um Otherwise, we will see you next week. Thanks very much. Thanks.